Hello, how are you? I'm Gabby. Welcome to another episode of the Happier Life Project, brought to you by the award-winning free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what am I doing with my life? What's the point? Why am I here? In psychology and psychotherapy, existential crises are inner conflicts characterized by the impression that life lacks meaning or by confusion about one's personal identity. To experience an existential crisis is usually accompanied by anxiety and stress, often to such a degree that they disturb your normal functioning in everyday life and can lead to severe depression. Existential therapy focuses on free will, self-determination and the search for meaning. It's not necessarily searching for the big answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? It's more looking for the answer to the question, what's the meaning of my life? And that's what we're going to explore today. Are we living a life of purpose and meaning and alignment and authenticity? Or have we somehow veered off course? So we're feeling quite lost, maybe a bit empty. The good news is we can steer ourselves home. And that's what we're going to be looking at with today's guest, Dr. Sarah Kubrick, an existential psychotherapist, speaker, essayist, columnist, consultant, and author of It's On Me, Accept Hard Truths, Discover Yourself, and Change Your Life. It's On Me is a fantastic guide to identifying self-loss and discovering the freedom that comes from taking responsibility for how we live. This book invites you to go deeply inwards, stripping away all the labels and the masks, questioning your values, decluttering any mental baggage that you've picked up along the way that does not serve and offers you a blueprint to a more purposeful existence that is right for you. Dr. Sarah is extremely passionate about helping people seek change and live authentic, free and meaningful lives. And she's been helping millions, yes, millions of people do just that. Known as the Millennial Therapist on Instagram, she's built up a community of over 1.7 million individuals due to her sharing her tips and musings that normalize human experiences and encourage self-reflection. This is a really deep, juicy conversation, but Dr. Sarah is so cool and easy to chat to. She really helps simplify stuff. And honestly, when you read the book and even listen to this conversation, you're bound to have some light bulb moments when you think about when your anxiety was high or maybe when you were feeling really low or you're in a state of fear and panic. It might be because you are not living your life the way that is right for you to thrive and enjoy. And it happens to the best of us. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Sarah Kubrick, to the Happier Life Project. Thrilled to have you. 
as we just briefly spoke about, I've read the book twice because I felt like I really needed to do that to be fully transparent. I didn't even know what an existential therapist was before. And this is me presenting this podcast now for three years. And so then when I started to learn and understand a bit about you and also a bit about the the, the topic, the main topic being self-loss, and I was like, I'm sure this is the root of where a lot of people are in crisis and then consequently suffer from their mental health, but they might not be able to articulate it, you know, or have come to that conclusion like you did at the tender age of 24. But before we jump into all that, I would love it if coming from the words of a professional, you could explain to our app users and our listeners, what is existential therapy and, and how do you work with your clients on that basis? Yeah, and this is a super common question, which makes me super excited because I don't think it gets a lot of airtime. And uh, I often get asked, like, how is existential therapy different than normal therapy? And then I always chuckle because there is no normal therapy per se. I think it helps you just understand how therapists work. So each therapy has a theory or a modality or multiple in which they it helps them understand what the client is going through. So when the client sits in front of you, it's kind of like a map in your head where you ask specific questions, you conceptualize their problems in a way, and then you help them get to where they want to go, depending on what and how your theory understands change and healing and growth and all those great yummy things that we want in therapy. And so my theory of practice comes from existential philosophy, uh, more specifically existential analysis. And so all that means is that the way I perceive my client and my work comes from this framework. And existentialists are known to tackle very universal questions and themes of isolation and death and meaning and authenticity. And so when I'm talking to a client, these are the types of things that I'm thinking about while an attachment theory expert might be looking for the attachment of the client through their narratives, through their conversation. And so that's, that's kind of the comparison I like to get, but hopefully that helped give a bit of a glimpse of what it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And as I touched upon before, you came to this huge crossroads in your life at, at 24 and it manifested as a panic attack. And it was, I suppose, for the first mm-hmm. time where you'd really asked yourself, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? And, yep. and then it just basically has sort of paved the way since for you, right? I think a lot of people question that and 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 go, you know, what am I doing with my life? Why are mm-hmm. so many people struggling, do you think, with this? I think it's inherently human to ask that question because mm-hmm. you're alive and you want to know why. You know, I don't think it's pathological to want to know why. It's like if you saw a elephant in a room, you'd be like, why is there an elephant in my room? (laughs) Like, why is it in my backyard? It's like we want to understand the purpose of things. And so I think a part of that is just inherent. And I think a lot of people don't ask that question until they experience the pain of not knowing why. And we in our current society have so many distractions and so many expectations and so many scripts of the way we should live and conduct ourselves that once we go down that path, we stop asking what is our personal why, why we're alive, because we have all these checklists to fulfill. And so we're too busy doing that. And then at some point, I think all of us to various degrees have this moment of like, 
what am I doing here? Like I'm checking out these things and particularly if it's things that are meant to bring you joy. So you got a promotion, you graduated from high school, you have a kid now, you got married, whatever it is, you hit a major milestone and then you go, well, this is not giving me what I thought it would give me. So a lot of people right. also ask this question at a big high where they go, well, I thought this would solve my problems or give me fulfillment or meaning. And all it's done is check off something, an item from my list. And so I think that that's a really unnerving place to find ourselves. So mm. one example of when people ask that question. And then is is a lot of that to do with then maybe they check something off the list because they think that's what they should be doing, such as, for example, having a child. That might not be for everybody, but they might be conditioned to think, mm -hmm. well, this is what I do. Is that then where the inner conflict happens because it doesn't bring you the joy it's supposed to because yeah. you're not aligning with your true self and, and deep down your true beliefs and wants and desires. For sure. And I think it's also it, the self-betrayal becomes a bit more obvious. <laughs> you go, I didn't do this for me and I betrayed myself. I didn't have my own back. I didn't do what I knew was best. And sometimes we don't know what's best. And that's a completely different conversation. But there's a lot of people that are sort of pushed or coerced into certain things that society is telling them they should want. Having a child is really an excellent example where I don't think every woman out there is dying to have a child. And yet we've made it very like, that's the definition of being a woman. It's like, right. and it, for example, I'm someone who does not want children and I've been quite vocal about that. And anytime I say that people are super surprised. They're like, she's gonna change her mind. She must change her mind what horrible thing has happened to you that you don't want to have a child like it cannot just be a preference a lack of alignment there's always a bit of pushback and you know that's just one example of how society sometimes makes us think uh, or forces us to believe that we want things that we don't actually want and that are not in alignment with us mm, and then maybe if we do secretly think i don't want that then you we think what's wrong with me why don't i want that totally yeah, yeah absolutely especially if you're the only one in your friend circle. And now I think it's a little different. I have quite a few girlfriends that feel similarly, but I remember when I became vocal about this at 19 instead of 30s, people were like, what is wrong with you? And I, I went like, oh, wh why do I not have this instinct? I used to be like, am I not? Like, why don't I have this maternal need to take care of someone else? And it was a thing I had to reconcile with myself and also realize that I wasn't less of a person or less of a valued woman if I didn't want to have a child. Mm, yeah. Or probably when you're very young, people would say, oh, you'll change your mind. You'll change your mind. All the time. Grow up. <laughs> yeah. They don't say it as much anymore. <laughs> right, right. It's yeah. just quite interesting how many people sort of in similar lines of work to you, women that I've spoken to that have made the same decision as well, that it's the path isn't isn't for them. And a lot of my yoga teachers as well, they always say like my students and my babies. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> totally. So do you feel as well that a lot of people are kind of sleepwalking through life and it's that sort of, um, you know, you almost become quite numb. It's the sort of day to day. And this might be, yeah. again, this sort of like not living life. I'm being careful using the word authentically because I know from mm -hmm. the book you have your own thoughts on, on that word or the mystery mm -hmm. of that word. Yeah, it's it's that alignment, isn't it, from the true self? Is that as well why sometimes we can almost 
treat life, sorry, just quite monotonously. And it's like, it's another day and the days rolled into weeks and months and da, 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 da. Yeah. It's like, what's the chicken, the egg kind of dilemma here. I think when we treat life without a sense of agency, as in like, I know exactly I'm going to wake up and then I'm going to shower and then I'm going to have breakfast and I'm going to grab a coffee. Then I'm going to walk over to my office and I'm going to do the emails. I'm going to come home, watch Netflix, have dinner, go to bed. Mm -hmm. If that is your routine and there's no conscious choice or sense of agency as you're going through it, you are on autopilot Mm -hmm. and you are sleepwalking through life because there's nothing authentic, I would say about that. And that's not to say that things you're doing are fully out of alignment, but I just think, again, goes back to my definition of authenticity of like, you're not owning your life. You're not deliberately living your life. And I think there's something really dangerous about being passive, even if there is routine. And I think routine and structure is quite healthy for us. I think it has to be deliberate. It's like choosing your partner every single day choosing to have that green smoothie and being like, do I feel like having it? Do I want to have it? Why am I choosing to have this green smoothie? For example, I don't have green smoothies, but I think it's not, yes, of course, it's important what you do, but how you got to that decision, I think is as important as in like actually engaging with your own existence, taking responsibility and understanding that every single thing you do shapes who you become. There's no neutral decision. There's no decision that's irrelevant. Every decision brings you closer to that person or further away. That decision is authentic or it's not. And what authentic means is going to change over time. But I I just don't think we always comprehend how much power and how much freedom we have in shaping our life and our relationship to life. Mm. And what if we aren't living authentically then? How does that present? I'd imagine... By the time you see a client, then they've probably come to a point where they realize something is wrong and that's why they find you and Mm -hmm. they see you. But like, how can it present to, say, our listeners if if any of this is resonating to them? Yeah, look, um, I think self-loss is quite an extreme version of inauthenticity, but I feel something that I found was I had a really hard time making decisions really, really difficult time, which I also understand can be a symptom of anxiety, but it wasn't for me. It was just that I wasn't sure what was the right thing to do. And I would text every person I knew, sending them a picture of a dress being like, should I get this? And sending them a picture of a, of a post, should I post this? And I had such a hard time making decisions because what was I making this decision based on? There was, you know, it, it wasn't, I, I had no direction. I had no idea who the main character was in the story. So it was, it all felt super arbitrary. And then I didn't want the responsibility of running my own life. So then I was like, how about you make the decision? Then I can at least blame you. <laughs> right. I think a lot of us do that, right? It's like really convenient. It's like, I don't want to take the fault. So, you know, if I have a miserable life, fine, but at least it'll be your fault and not mine. That's a really interesting way that you can sometimes see self-loss um, patterns in relationships of fully molding and becoming who the other person wants you to be or not breaking up a relationship because you have no idea who you are and you have no sense of self outside of that relationship. I'm not saying that is self-loss to a T, but that can be a manifestation of self-loss. And then another one, I'll just use like our body as an example. I used to have so many bruises just because I was like in the gym or whatever. And I had no idea where they came from. 
Mm. And some of them were quite big. So what that signaled to me was like, at no point was I paying attention to what my body was doing. When I was in pain, I didn't stop to address it. And what that signaled to me was a disconnect with my body. And in my book, I'm pretty adamant about you cannot have a healthy sense of self without including your body. And so that was a really big signal to me in terms of like, okay, something, I am a stranger to myself. Mm. What would have happened if you, or do you think, because we're sort of talking hypothetically, but what would have happened if you hadn't have not just come to this realization of like, I don't know who I am anymore, but wanted to do something about it and to find yourself? Um, this is where I'm really grateful for the panic attacks. Never thought I would say that because it didn't really feel like an option. <laughs> like I felt like I hit rock bottom. My life was threatened. I didn't want to live that way. And it's like, I had to do something. Um, but I don't think that that's an experience everyone has. And I think a lot of people die without living. Wow. I think a lot of people have very unfulfilling and painful existence and sometimes it's on them and sometimes it's not sometimes it is contextual so we obviously have to honor and differentiate those two contexts but i i do think that what happens is nothing i think your existence gets reduced your sense of agency and freedom you perceive it as non-existent and i i don't think that you truly live mm. and you also have a really hard time connecting with others. And I think it's a really lonely, lonely experience because who is the other person having a relationship with if you don't actually exist? And so that relationship can only reach a certain level of intimacy or depth or meaning. And uh, a lot of people who are lost also feel incredibly lonely, not just because they don't have themselves, but also because it's so much harder to connect to others. Yeah, I um I underlined what if I die before I have the chance to exist? That was the question you asked yourself. Yeah. Yeah, really powerful. Why did you call the book It's on Me? Well, <laughs> it went through a lot of um the title is the hardest part. At yeah. least it was for me. It's a phrase I used a lot in the book and I didn't really realize it. There were many, many titles prior to this. And one of the reasons is like, this is the message itself. It's just in the book so many times, but I wanted to empower people. It wasn't about finger pointing, which I think sometimes that's what it comes off at as. And I think that's a reflection of the relationship the person has with their sense of responsibility. But for me, it was just really important to empower the individual to say, it's on you to have the life that you want. You are the only person that can make the necessary changes. And that should be empowering and liberating and also a shit ton of work. Mm -hmm. And so it's on me was just kind of the summary of that responsibility piece and that empowerment piece. And I think a lot of people go, well, if only my husband would change this, well, if only my boss was yeah such and such then i would have the life that i want and i think i i push back a little bit of course your life would be much better if they did those things but you also cannot surrender you still have the freedom you still have a choice of how you want to relate to your own life and there are many decisions you're probably making and not even being conscious of that are making you feel this way and so it's about like what control do you still have and it might not be a lot but what control do you still have and how can you show up in the world that means something to you? 
Mm. We do get a lot of external messages from loved ones, from social media, from watching Mm -hmm. TV even. So I think like something that you really highlight in the book is that a lot of these kind of layers that we've developed or these even different masks that we slip on, we might not even be aware Mm -hmm. that we're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we're so used to, all of us want to be loved and belong. And I think that's a very normal thing. And I don't think we should shame each other for that. But I think that we have been conditioned or or believe that the only way to achieve those things is to be exactly who others want us to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we slip in and out of these personalities, these roles. And that's very confusing when, I don't know if you've ever met a person who with a certain type, like group of friends, they act very differently. And then you see them at work. And this has happened to me, seeing someone in a social context and seeing them at work. Yeah. And it was so incredibly jarring. And that's not because I expect you to be work person across the board, but it's because I couldn't recognize you at all. Like I had one experience where I was like, wow, this person seems like a different human being. If you hid their face and told me there was, I wouldn't have believed you because everything about the vocabulary, the way they express themselves, the things they seem to care about is completely different. And that happens to us all the time. And we all do it to varying degrees. And so I think it's just important that you work towards being cohesive that yes, different contexts will highlight different parts of you, but it shouldn't be a fragmented version of you that's now being like the pieces are being scattered and none of it makes sense and none of it is cohesive and so I think when we put on masks and roles as our identity gets really tricky because when we're switching masks it's really hard to keep track of who you really are yeah Um, and I think that who we are comes through the way we express ourselves and so if our expression is confusing or incoherent we'll be looking at our actions and going who the heck is this person? Like, how did I even make that decision? And I personally had many of those experiences where I'd just be like, what the heck? I don't even recognize this girl. And that's what we're trying to stay clear of. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of like our mental health, how have you seen this be detrimental to our, our mental health? If we're not living authentically and we're too busy being the person that we think others expect us to be. Yeah. I mean, that can manifest in so many ways. I think depression and anxiety are the common ways that um, our body tries to signal to us that something is not okay. For me, it was definitely, you know, my panic attacks. Mm. It's hard to say chicken or the egg again, but if you're feeling really depressed and you have a hard time expressing yourself, that can impact and make you feel disconnected from who you truly are and can lead to self-loss and then self-loss and the fact that you feel so disconnected can lead to the depression. Um, so it's it's really difficult, but I think we need to understand that not knowing who we are has consequences. Mm. Um, and it's not just about hashtag authenticity. It's like right. you need to know who the, the main character of this movie is. Otherwise, watching the movie is very confusing. And you need to know how to best support and take care of who you are in your relationships. And again, you cannot do that if you don't understand it's like trying to use a tool and you don't know what the tool is for or what the tool is. Um, it's really difficult. And so I think we should take it seriously in terms of, I think pretty severe chronic self-loss can lead 
to a lot of mental health discomfort, if not, you know, more serious issues. Yeah. So then it's on me taking responsibility, shaping who I want to become, where to start? Where do we start looking into this stuff and questioning this stuff if maybe we haven't done that before? Yeah. Um, so I always look at the self. I think I divided it in the book in like the mind, the body, and the emotion. And I think something I get people to do is ask yourself, like, which of these are you the most or least connected with? So for me, I was the most probably disconnected with my body, then my emotions, then my mental self. And so For me, I think sometimes it's hard to tackle all three at once. So I suggest like, think of where the disconnect is the largest and work on that relationship. If it's your emotional self, work on really identifying emotions, not judging emotions, respecting, validating emotions, and then still making a conscious choice that's not fully driven by the emotion. And I think a lot of it goes back to observation. Think about a first date. You're incredibly attuned you're laser focused, everything they do has meaning everything. It's like, is there body language towards me? Is it not? They made a joke about this. They liked whatever they graced my arm. They didn't graze my arm. That's the kind of attention and enthusiasm we need to have when getting to know ourselves. And so, you know, break it into a category, have that enthusiasm, date your emotional self, date your mental self, date your physical self and really dedicate your time to getting to know that aspect and then go kind of down the the hierarchy. And if you need like a journaling question, one that I really appreciate is like, what did I learn about myself today? Sounds very basic, but it's actually really difficult to do if you didn't pay attention. <laughs> it's impossible to do if you didn't pay attention. And so a lot of it is What did you observe? Did it reinforce a belief that you had about yourself? Did it completely shatter a belief you had about yourself? And the fact that we think that you would run out of things to say after a month is what boggles my mind because you are perpetually becoming, changing, evolving, complex human being. Even your partner, it would take you, well, forever. I don't think you'll ever fully understand. So the fact that we are like, we know ourselves well enough. There's nothing new I would learn about myself. I always kind of chuckle at that because this question really forces you to dig deep and keep being open and curious to the person you're becoming. Yeah. You're making me think when you mentioned about the the body and being disconnected from the body, I think so many people are because it doesn't look the way we want it to look. But then this is where, again, getting back to the sort of crux of self-loss and it's on me and everything like this, it's have we been conditioned by these messages that we should have the body of a Kardashian? And, uh, you know, we're disconnected because we don't, because we don't have access to all the trainers and the cooks and the surgeons and everything else that goes into making that body look the way it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then that's actually the self-loss thing is like, well, we're mourning something we could never have attained. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the issue with looking at the body like that is we're looking at it as a property as an object that we modify as something that just serves a purpose that's external. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so many narratives that just make our bodies tools um, and servants. And I think that's something I try to dispel in my book of like, your body's not something you just 
have, your body's also something you are. Like, let that sink in of how serious that is. It's like um, complimenting a heart surgeon on their good hairstyle after performing a surgery. You'd go like, that is so irrelevant. And that's sometimes how I feel when we talk about our physical appearance of like, Yes, of course, I get it. Like, it, it would be nice to look a certain way. And the way you think you should look is completely conditioned by society. But I get the desire to do that. But thinking that your entire body's purpose is to look a certain way and to be pleasing to other people, I think is so degrading to what your body truly is. And your body is such a core part of who you are. If you think about it, you would not exist without your body. <laughs> You couldn't actually engage with the world without it. It is the thing that allows you to exist. And yet we treat it like a prop, like a, a decoration. And so I think a lot of the work around the body is dismantling our beliefs about what it actually is and what its purpose is. I think that can be really, really helpful because you're right. If we go, our body's just a tool. Our body just is decorative. It needs to look a certain way. And I can't have it look a certain way because I don't have the money, the finances, the surgeons, the cooks, the whatever, that I don't want anything to do with it. It's yeah. a reminder of my constant failure. I'm disappointed at it. I'm angry at it. I don't want anything to do with it. And then we make the self almost impossible to obtain. But if we realize that the way we look is just such a tiny part of of what the body is, then we give it a bigger chance to still connect and find we can be frustrated with the way it looks, but it doesn't mean that we'll be completely disconnected. Yeah, you've got some fantastic case studies, obviously, in the book. Let's say I'm a client and I'm coming to you and I'm feeling lost and I'm feeling empty. I'm a female, I'm in my early 30s. I'm unfulfilled in my job. I'm struggling to find anybody suitable to date. I distract myself with social media and dating apps. I'm not sure what to do career-wise, so I'm constantly clock-watching for when the workday will end. I'm so unmotivated. I don't have any energy to work out and eat healthily, so I don't feel good in my body, and therefore this is why I think I can't get a romantic partner. Where would you start with me? I love this. <laughs> it's just so complex, but it's such a beautiful case study because it shows you the no domino effect that I think a lot of people experience right. of like one leads to the next to the next to the next and now you're like I'm unlovable no one wants me um yeah. and I think I would the actual honest answer is I would start where the client wanted to start depending on what their goal was but I being who I am I would definitely probe what their relationship to their self is because is it a manifestation of like do you not have meaning because you don't know who you are it's really hard to have meaning when Meaning for what, for who? And so for me, it always goes back to how is this person talking about their body? How is this person talking about relationships? How is this person experiencing themselves in the world? And I would start probably with self-work. That is the honest answer. I would go, let's go through the hierarchy. Why are we feeling really disconnected right now? How can we reconnect you with who you are so that you can find meaning in your job, so that you can change your attitude about your job, so that you can honor your body with the lifestyle that you have and then that you can regain maybe that confidence and self-esteem when it comes to dating so a lot of it would be first just assessing how disconnected or connected they were 
and what decisions or autopilot tendencies have led them to be in this sort of headspace. Where are you at with finding purpose in life? Like we've heard a lot that, you know, if you have purpose in life, then it's really good for your mental health. And it can be very detrimental if you just are kind of, you know, meandering through life without purpose. So Mm -hmm. is this something that you help your clients to find? Absolutely. Yeah. Purpose is is huge. And something that I will say is that individuals who find purpose, the purpose is often rooted in two things. One, authenticity. So they're very aware of who they are and how they engage in the world. And that's important because your purpose will be grounded in values. And so you need it to be really closely connected to who you are. Otherwise, what you're doing could be meaningful to your mom, to your dad, to your cousin, to your neighbor, but it won't be meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. So meaning is subjective. And that's an important thing to remember. The second is usually it's um, rooted in expression. So a lot of people will find meaning in service. Mm -hmm. And I kind of hate that word, but I think that's because it's, rooted in expression. And so when you feel like you're showing yourself or you're helping someone or you're living out those values, that's when most people find meaning. Meaning is almost never found in selfish things. And that's an interesting observation of like my work and 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 my clinical practice. I've never found someone being like, I found so much meaning in just making money for myself. Like that has never, and yeah, we think that something like that would bring us a lot of meaning. That will bring us security. That will bring us comfort. That will bring us a lot of things, but meaning might not be one of them. And so yeah. make sure that your meaning is really rooted in authenticity in expression and in your values and it's going to be a very subjective experience that changes because what you found meaningful in your 20s might not be meaningful in your 30s. And that's totally OK. If anything, that's actually quite healthy. So would you say that in your role as a therapist and a writer that you found your purpose? Yes. And <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I derive a lot of my meaning, majority of my meaning from my work. And I I think it's why I'm passionate about it. And there's pros and cons to being this passionate about your work and finding meaning in your work. That being said, I think reevaluating my meaning and having moments of like, why am I doing this is very common for me. It's probably why I'm an existentialist. (laughs) I will have moments that I you know, once or twice a year, at least, where I'll be like, what, what is the point of any of it? What actually brings me joy? What actually brings me fulfillment? And I'll have this like spiral of agony. And instead of being really scared or f- perceiving it as a threat, I really started to see it as just a check-in. Yeah. All I'm doing is saying, hey, Sarah, are you actually on the right path? I'm noticing that you don't feel that same sense of fulfillment from the way that you've been writing this thing or conducting this project Mm -hmm. is it burnout or is a lack of alignment you've changed a lot in six months if it's lack of alignment it's time to pivot or move on and so i find these moments of of existential dread and questioning and kind of that crisis although it's not a full existential crisis obviously it's it's actually really helpful and my reframe is always I'm checking in with myself. The universe is checking in with me and making sure that I'm still aligned. And that helps me when I have those moments of like, 
why am I doing this? What am I doing with my life? But I would say that I really find a strong sense of purpose in my work. And I'm very fortunate for that. And I don't have as as many, you know, um, moments of meaninglessness. But to say that I never have them would just be a flat out lie. <laughs> I love that. So I will not lie to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I appreciate it. Uh, I have to yeah. squeeze in just talking quickly about mental decluttering and creating space for who you really are. That was, mm. I think, my favorite chapter in the book. And I don't oh, know. If lovely. Was, yeah. I don't know if it was because it really resonated because I have like we very recently moved apartments and I've been going through a big physical decluttering and love it. I have definitely noticed it has mentally helped me create space. You say releasing or eliminating thoughts, beliefs, opinions, assumptions, habits, possessions that are not serving us in order to be who we truly are. We need to shelve who we are not so could mm-hmm. you give a quick example of what a mental spring clean might look like? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think for me, in my experience, I had to come to terms with everything I wasn't before I came to terms with everything I was. Mm. And that meant, it's a silly example, I grew up on the Pacific Northwest. So being an outdoorsy girl <laughs> It's a thing. Like you should want to wear boots, wool socks and go camp. And I could think of nothing, nothing, nothing worse than that. And rain jackets are not a fashion statement. You know, like I just did not, I did not love that. And it was really hard for me because everyone around me was like that. And everyone expected me whenever I say I'm from Vancouver, they'd be like, oh my God. And they would like be like, I love that hike between this and this. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and this is a silly example. And I want to use a silly example because nothing is silly. I had to release the notion. I had to release space and that expectation and that imposition and that I, w- I was unhappy about the fact I couldn't be that girl because that would have made my life easier. And so I had to come to terms with like, I'm just not that girl. <laughs> and I will always pick a croissant over a salad and that's okay. And I had to come to terms with everything I wasn't. And at that time I was a wife and I had to come to terms with that. I actually don't identify as a wife and I, that's not someone I wanted to be. That was on the more serious side of of things. And so creating space meant letting go of structures and beliefs and habits and expectations that I and others have imposed on me just to go, okay, now you have space to be whoever you want to be. What are you going to decide? Because I do think ultimately it is a decision of how we choose to show up in the world. And so we all have limitations and some of us have more of them than others, depending on context and, and culture and politics and a bunch of things. And so we need to honor that. But for me, I just had to let go of everything I could and then give myself space to then start to construct who I really was. Mm. Self-awareness, holding up an unbiased yes. mirror to yourself, mm-hmm. meeting yourself. What if you don't like who you see? Mm. First of all, normal okay (laughs) it's so normal like if you looked and you were like i like everything i'd be like amazing teach me your ways i think (laughs) everyone has something that they do not want to see that they see so don't be sad overwhelmed don't shame yourself don't punish yourself but without awareness there's no change you need to know what's wrong before you can fix it 
And, you know, we all have different doses of truth that we can handle. And sometimes it takes us a while to fully see the truth of, you know, who we're presenting. But the really cool thing is that chances are your decisions have led to where you are right now, which means that your decisions can lead you somewhere else. And I think that that's the cool thing about how much power we have. Mm. Before we do our last five in five, the quick fire questions, mm-hmm. I've got one more that I want to squeeze in, starting with a quote from Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde said, be yourself, everybody else is taken. What does it mean <laughs> it. to you, Sarah, to be yourself? To be myself, I, I think um, the who am I question is not just answered Verbally, I think it's answered actually by the way that we live our lives. So to be me means to live according to my values and to express myself in the most accurate and authentic way that I can. So to be me right now means so many things at once. It means to be a sister and a friend and a therapist and a writer and for all of those things to be a cohesive whole. And so to be me is pretty good right now. <laughs> I, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm okay. I'm like that girl when she was 24. I'm pretty, I'm fond of her. Amazing. She's someone I recognize. Yeah. I love that. Is it ever too late to steer ourselves home? No, never, ever, ever, ever. It's never too late. And I think that that's a really cool realization and it's going to feel so good. It's going to be a lot of work. It's not always going to be pleasant but I think it's going to be super rewarding. And um, I think it's a journey worth taking regardless of how old you are or how far or distant you feel from yourself. And if you need a little bit of help on that quest, then It's On Me is a great place to start. We do a quick sort of signature sign off at the end of every episode with our guests, and it's the Happier Life Project's last five in five. So it's the same five questions I ask every guest. When and where are you at your happiest? Okay, maybe this is the fatigue. Um, in my bed, <laughs> journaling. <laughs> that is when I'm at my happiest, probably. Fair. What's your yep. favorite thing to do that nourishes your mental health? Uh, right now, probably spend time with my family. What piece of advice do you now know that you wished somebody would have told you earlier that would have made you a happier person? Ooh. Stop living your life for others. Mm. You're going to have to live it. You're going to have to deal with the consequences. So if you're going to bear unpleasant consequences, do it for your own mistakes, for your own joys, for your own stupidity. Like, (laughs) they say that very lovingly. Like, then do it because you chose to do something and and it was, you know, part of your story rather than just trying to live someone else's. What is the most important one thing that needs to change to make the world a happier place? Oh my gosh, self-awareness. And finally, what is a simple actionable step we can take when it comes to discovering our true self that will help us on our mission to building a happier life? Ooh, I think we touched on it, but observe, observe, observe. And then act. (laughs) I think there's so much emphasis on like just the observation, the self-awareness and no action, and that's not going to bear fruit. And just acting without being self-aware is not going to lead you where you want to go. Find that sweet, sweet balance of self-awareness, observation, and then put it into action. And it's okay if you fail. 
trial and error. That's what life is. Oh, Sarah, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. So to find Thank and follow you, so you on Instagram, it's um, millennial.therapist. And you've got literally like nearly 2 million followers, is it? How, how the heck did that Thank happen? You. That must have come before the book because the book's quite new. So Correct. I have the best community. I'm super honored. I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to share how I see the world. And that's going to be obviously informed by my education, my life experience. And let's see who uh, resonates. And luckily for me, lots of people resonated. We def- definitely have a beautiful way with words. And then for anybody who wants to find your book, I suppose it's available in all the usual places. But if we point to your website, it's www.sarahspellsara. Is it a hyphen or is it a minus sign? I'm pretty sure it's a dash. It's a dash. That's I, I don't think that. I'm wrong. Yeah. I'm going to put this in the show notes anyway. And then it's Kubrick, K-U-B-U-R-I-C.com. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a dash. Okay. But you know what? Just Google my name, Sarah Kubrick. My website will come up. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. I loved your questions. They were thoughtful and insightful. And I talked a lot, but I hope something was helpful. I mean, talk about thoughtful and insightful. That's that's you to a T. So yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate the time. I'm sure we'll cross paths. Hello, it's Gabby back with you. Thank you again to Dr. Sarah Kubrick. And thank you to you for listening to this very episode of the Happier Life Project. And now for the important housekeeping before we sign off. If you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening right now on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download. You can access all of the content and you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. If you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, please call your doctor or the emergency services immediately. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewer, which is me and the interviewees. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The Priory Healthcare are not involved in the production or content of this podcast. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to have to say it. If you found this episode helpful, please do leave a review. It helps others to find us. And do subscribe to the pod if you are listening outside of the app. And to find and follow us on social media, if you're not already there, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. Do take care and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now. <laughs>